0: trial for D.C. sniper suspect Lee Boyd Malvo began November 10, 2003 and ended a couple of days before Christmas, and you could say it began in earnest because compiling evidence and flying and lodging witnesses during the weeks leading up to jury selection made for a frenetic preparation for both sides. The defendant had entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. There were literally dozens of witnesses testifying to Malvo's state of mind and describing how he was under the spell of his co-defendant, John Allen Muhammad. Malvo was 18 years old by the time he stood trial, but he looked no older than 13, and he was facing a possible death sentence. There was a matchup between two tremendously gifted lead attorneys. There were fiery objections throughout. A number of audio recordings were played in court, including one very chilling suspect interview. Prosecutor Bob Haran described the Chevrolet Caprice as a car that was adapted for use as a killing machine, and jurors got a close look at it. And there was gut-wrenching testimony from the victim's families. Witnesses and media traveled from other countries to attend the trial. All of it led to a surprising ending full of mixed emotions there has never been another trial quite like it. Presented by Law & Crime, this is Chasing Ghosts, The Hunt for the D.C. Snipers. Both opening statements were effective tone-setters. Horan laid out his case in uncompromising fashion. He did not raise his voice nor do much gesturing. He simply described in detail what made the acts of the defendant so monstrous. Horan went through the line of victims, and when he got to Linda Franklin, who was the sniper's 11th victim of the DC area rampage, Horan quoted what Malvo casually said to investigators. I hit her in the head. That's what I was aiming for. Haran looked directly at Malvo when he recited those words, and Malvo sat still and looked back at Haran with a blank expression. Haran said Malvo was so glib and emotionless during his interview that it was hard to imagine that he was actually talking about shooting people. Haran ended his opening statement by saying Malvo had an irresistible urge to kill. And that he spoke about shooting people in a cold and callous way. He said that the defendant's actions were premeditated and that he understood every step of the way what he was doing. Haran asked jurors whether Malvo's words and behavior in any way resembled the utterances of an insane man. He then said to them, I ask you to be fair to all those dead people. After Haran was done, It was the defense's turn to give its opening statement, and that fell on Craig Cooley. This is how Cooley began his statement. Quote, They have a saying in Jamaica that describes a form of child-rearing that was used by Lee's mother and many of his caretakers. It's called Save the Eye. Have you ever heard the phrase? Do you know what it means? Save the Eye means you, as a parent, Take your child to a teacher, to a caretaker, anyone who keeps them, and oversees of any kind. And you say to them, use whatever is necessary to make my child obey you. You can beat him. You can beat him with whatever you want to. You can beat him on whatever part of the body you want to beat him. But do two things. Don't kill him. And don't put out his eye. Save the eye. That's what that phrase means. Cooley wanted to get the jury's attention and establish that not only was Malvo a sympathetic figure in spite of the violence he inflicted, but someone who was susceptible to indoctrination because he was so obedient and so vulnerable to a bloodthirsty authority figure like Muhammad. Cooley spoke to me about the thought process behind his opening statement. We all statement had to have a lot of
1: volume in it, a lot of content in it. It can't just be, oh, you've got to be fair to him. He's a youngster. It had to really lay out the entire case and what happened from beginning to end.
0: With those opening statements, the trial for Lee Boyd Malveaux was underway and it captivated every media member who was watching. And there were a lot of us. More than 100 members of the press were there to document every sight and sound that occurred each day for seven weeks. There were national media, as well as TV and print outlets from four major news markets. The courthouse was heavily guarded, and the property around it was heavily occupied by TV news trucks. It was overwhelming, even for the attorneys, all of whom had experience covering highly publicized cases, but none like this one. Tom Walsh, another of Malvo's attorneys, still remembers seeing that roaming regiment of journalists for the first time.
2: So we all
3: get together, we're fresh, here we go, we're starting this big trial, and we drive to Chesapeake, and
4: we park, and we have our bags. And I remember getting out of the car and turning and looking up and going, oh my god, in front of us, here comes all these people running at us with TV cameras on their shoulders. We turned around and ran into the police station. I mean, they were coming at us so fast. We turned around and just started running away from the courthouse. I remember getting in the police station and going, oh my God, what what are we going to do?
0: As I mentioned, weeks prior to the start of the trial, Malvo's defense attorneys announced they would be mounting an insanity defense for their client. It's important to note that the defense brought to the stand witnesses who typically are not introduced to jurors until after a guilty verdict is reached. They're usually what's called mitigation witnesses intended to inform jurors of mitigating circumstances that led to the defendant's criminal behavior, which in turn would make them less likely to recommend a death sentence during the trial's penalty phase. But Cooley and his team knew that the sooner they introduced that evidence, the better. They could not afford to wait until the end of the trial to present it. And that was part of the reasoning behind entering a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. The insanity plea, I think, was well justified.
1: We had seven, I think, mental health experts to go through the process of him being trained as a child soldier and how that alters your mindset. What is normally right and wrong is completely reversed. But the insanity plea gave us the ability to front load mitigation. We all believe if the prosecution just put on its case unfettered, by the time we even got our first witness on the stand, it would be too late. The jury would have already gone over the dam and and we were already sunk.
0: The volume of witnesses and the speed in which the case went from first appearance to jury trial resulted in Haran asking for a continuance. He had never done that in more than three decades as the Fairfax County's Commonwealth's attorney. His request was denied. But Bob Haran was not going to stand by and let the defense introduce witnesses and evidence that he thought were inappropriate or irrelevant to the guilt or innocence of the defendant. Some of Haran's objections were sustained. Others were not. Tom Walsh was the one tasked with calling and questioning many of those witnesses, all of whom were experts in the fields of indoctrination, cults, and adjacent forms of psychological abuse. Haran really made Walsh work at it.
3: For 30 minutes, I tried to get the first expert, the cult expert, in. I got objection after
0: objection as to hypothetical question, no hypothetical question. That was brutal. Among the defense witnesses called to the stand during the Malvo trial was Dr. Dewey Cornell, a forensic clinical psychologist and a professor at the University of Virginia. Cornell described how an obedient child like Malvo, who was longing to have a father figure in his life and aching to please that father figure, could be turned into an assassin ready to kill on command. Cornell said Malvo was the perfect mark for someone like John Allen Muhammad.
4: Lee had a very traumatic childhood with multiple abandonments by his mother and also disappointments that he was not able to maintain a relationship with his father. He was a young man who was kind of primed, if you will, to have a father figure. And when he first saw John Muhammad in in Antigua, he basically was uh, very excited about the prospect of having someone who would be a kind of surrogate father. And John Muhammad did a lot of things that built up a very strong relationship. Relationship and bond between them. And then over a period of time, John became his mentor, his surrogate father, and began to educate him and mold him with his philosophy, his view of life, his politics, his religion, and ultimately his criminal motives.
0: Cornell remembers the level to which the Commonwealth tried to quell his testimony.
4: I think it was very evident to anyone who was in the courtroom that they were attempting to suppress my testimony, interrupt it, distort it, make statements about it that were inaccurate. It was mischaracterized and they attempted to put a lot of pressure on me both in and outside the courtroom.
0: It wasn't just mental health witnesses that the defense called to the stand. John Allen Muhammad's ex-wife, Mildred, also testified an unusual tactic considering she had never met Malvo. She was there to describe how effectively her ex-husband could manipulate a child.
1: We were fortunate in that Mildred Muhammad came to the trial and testified before Lee and said, my husband, John Muhammad, is, is a child magnet, that if he went into a gymnasium that was full of kids, and he took a chair and sat it in the middle of the gymnasium. In a matter of minutes, the kids would be lined up to talk to him. And that is right, because he, he was attentive to them. He would listen to them. And he had a, a great way with
0: charming kids. Had pipe races, as, as how she described it. Addressing Malvo’s fragile state of mind wasn’t the only method the defense relied on to convince jurors that Malvo was impressionable to a tragic fault. Malvo’s childlike appearance was also played up. Malvo was five feet five inches tall and weighed no more than a hundred and thirty pounds. He looked downright meek by the way he carried himself and the way he sat at the defense table. He would draw pictures while the trial was going on. And he was dressed in slacks, a dress shirt, and a sweater. He looked like any kid you would see at a church service. Everyone in that courtroom noticed that. The media, the victim's families, and those seated at the prosecution table. Among those not amused by Malvo's appearance and courtroom behavior was April Carroll, a supervisory special agent with ATF who was one of the investigators for the Commonwealth.
5: It was so annoying. I mean, I, I really, like, I think I probably just looked at him and shook my head each day in court because clearly he was told by his team what to do, how to behave. It wasn't what we'd experienced when he was in custody.
0: Cooley admitted to me that dressing up Malvo in clothes befitting a Bible school student was intentional.
1: We actually had quite a discussion about that, because I don't know if you've ever gone to court and you see kids that come in and they're wearing a suit that's way too big for them. We thought about that because kids don't have suits. So the grandfather gives them a suit and they come into court and they just look so young because they're swallowed by, by this suit that doesn't belong to them. And that was part of the discussion because we wanted him to present as a kid. And so we ultimately decided against dressing him in too dressy and put him into um, <laughs> dress jeans and or slacks and collared shirt, as I recall, and sweaters. I think that set the tone for, for us and for him because that's what he is. He's, a, he's a seven. Stacy
0: old kid. Stacey Cohan was a reporter with WUSA Channel 9 in Washington, D.C., and would later enjoy a long career at CNN. She covered the shootings and the trial. Cohan often sat directly in front of me in court. She admitted that Malvo's wardrobe and demeanor easily could have had an effect on anyone watching. It did on me. You know, I'm a person that that like held hands with the Wallackers when they were sobbing, brought tears to my eyes.
4: Still does. And I hid my newborn daughter in fear. And there was this part of me that just kept looking at this kid and thinking, what went wrong with you that allowed you to participate in this? I don't think it was sympathy. That's the wrong word. But to say that I was like completely unmoved by that visual would be a lie.
0: The dichotomy of how Malvo looked in person and how he sounded during his recorded interview with Fairfax County Police Detective June Boyle and FBI Special Agent Brad Garrett was stark. Because during that interview, Malvo sounded every bit like the remorseless killer that Haran described during his opening, and the jury got to listen to that interview. One of the most chilling statements Malvo gave was when he spoke about shooting Sonny Buchanan, The first of the five victims shot on October 3, 2002. Buchanan was mowing grass behind an auto mall when Malvo fired a bullet into his body. In that portion of the recording, jurors heard Malvo mimicking the sound of a lawnmower and laughing. Malvo maintained that affect and tone throughout the entire interview. He talked about having a Virginia State Trooper in his sights and passing it up to shoot Kenneth Bridges, He said that he and his accomplice were amused by the public's hyper-focus on white vans, that they picked out targets where those vehicles were in proximity. Malvo bragged about eating raisins and watching movies on a DVD player inside the Chevrolet Caprice less than 30 minutes after shooting someone. Defense attorneys knew that jurors hearing that recording in its entirety would be difficult to overcome. They felt a sense of dread after hearing it during the discovery phase of the case.
1: I remember very vividly Tom, Mark and me listening to this and commenting as soon as we finished listening to it that this is not going just to convict him, this will kill Lee.
0: Jurors also got to see the Chevrolet Caprice that Muhammad and Malvo used to carry out most of the shootings. They saw how the seat hinged at the top, which allowed Malvo to shimmy or low crawl into the trunk. The trunk itself was raised with a bungee cord so Malvo could crack open the trunk and spot his target through the scope of his rifle. In the end, jurors deliberated for about three hours and returned with guilty verdicts on all charges related to the October 14, 2002 slaying of Linda Franklin. At the very least, based on the sentencing guidelines for capital murder at the time, Malvo was going to spend the rest of his life in prison. The penalty phase of the case was next, during which jurors would decide whether to give Malvo a death sentence. One of those pieces of evidence the Commonwealth introduced during the penalty phase was actually something that Judge Roush prevented jurors from hearing during the evidentiary portion of the trial. She would not let jurors hear that harrowing 911 call made by Linda Franklin's husband, Ted Franklin who made the call after his wife was shot in the head in the parking lot of a Home Depot. Roush made her original ruling because she thought the recording was too prejudicial. But the legal standard for such evidence changes during the penalty phase, and Roush allowed jurors to hear it before deciding on a life or death sentence. April Carroll said the crime scene at the Home Depot was, in one respect, the worst of all the shootings.
5: Well, the Linda Franklin crime scene was the most horrific, if there is such a way to differentiate these crime scenes, but she was the only person that had a loved one with her at the time.
0: While he was on the phone, Ted Franklin's voice was elevated. He was sobbing and screaming so much that the 911 operator could not understand what he was saying. That audio is too disturbing to play in its entirety. But here are a few seconds of that call. (laughs) At one point, Ted Franklin gave the phone to a bystander because he was too distraught to speak. He cradled his wife in his arms and cried while waiting for first responders to arrive. Ted Franklin attended the trial in full. When that recording was played to jurors, he covered his face with his hands and his shoulders trembled.
5: I don't know how you get over that PTSD from that scene. You know, I understand that he's doing well and has found new life and all of that, but I just can't imagine how you get over the PTSD of actually being there. It gives me PTSD to recall it,
0: much less this poor man that was there when his wife was executed that way. Jurors would hear a lot more during the next couple of days. Just like with the Muhammad trial, the judge allowed victim impact statements from family members of others who were slain during the three-week sniper spree, even though Malvo was not on trial for those murders. One of the witnesses was the daughter of Pascal Charlot, the victim who was shot and killed at the corner of Georgia Avenue and Kalmia Road in Washington, D.C., the night of October 3, 2002. Mirtha Sonata was the first victim family member to look Malvo in the eye and address him. As April Carroll can attest, the witness did not hold back.
5: She was very tense. I noticed that her shoulders were around her ears and she was gripping her hands so tight the knuckles were white and her voice was shaky as she was asked the questions. And at one point she went off script and she looked at Malvo and she actually said, Mr. Malvo, I looked at her and said, you are evil. You are pure evil.
0: After Mirtha Sonata finished testifying, Judge Roush summoned the attorneys for a sidebar conference. It was clear that she was telling Haran and his co-counsel to reel it in moving forward
5: judge called for a sidebar and the scope and you know she should be directed not to speak directly to the defendant and all of that and Mr. Herring came back to the table and was like yeah okay well we just got her wrist slapped but she got to say what she had to say and he wasn't faced by the reprimand by the judge.
0: There were still more witnesses to call and the one that elicited the most tears with her testimony was Linda Franklin's daughter Katrina Hannum. Katrina told jurors that she was pregnant with her first child when her mother was killed. She said that she had difficulty sleeping because of the nightmares associated with her mother's slaying. She said, "Quote, almost every night I have to watch this man shoot my mother in the head." During her testimony, Katrina referenced the fact that Malvo grew up mostly without a father and that he had attended 10 schools in 3 countries by the time he was 16. Katrina said she attended nine schools in five countries, and that her parents divorced when she was an infant. Ted married Linda many years later, so Katrina also did not have a father figure growing up. It was a direct shot at the defense's assertion that Malvo's background contributed to him becoming a brainwashed killer. Toward the end of her testimony, Katrina said her mother got to feel her belly once while her first child was still in her womb. The baby was kicking. She said as tears streamed down her face, quote, That was the one time she got to feel my son. At that moment, the media seated in the courtroom were passing around tissues. Jurors also reached for the tissue boxes in front of them. April Carroll knew going in that Katrina's testimony would be emotional. Everyone on that prosecution team knew it.
5: We were in another room in the courthouse getting ready and talking to her about what would be done and how it would be asked and what she would have the opportunity to say and what wasn't appropriate and all that. Mr. Horan looked at me and he goes, and you know you can't cry because I had tears just in the prep. And I said, I know, I know. I'll, I'll, I'll be okay, Mr. Horan. I won't let you down. He said, you're sitting right next to the jury. They will see every reaction that you have. And so I felt so scared to show the emotion that I was gripping my seat and I looked down and had white knuckles and I was shaking so intensely to prevent myself from crying that I was actually sweating and as she was talking I got a tear the jury was crying and I looked to Mr. Horan and he wiped a tear that had fallen halfway down his cheek before he actually took his hand and wiped it and I thought okay I'm okay I'm not gonna get in trouble if Mr. Horan's got a tear I'm gonna be okay
0: The defense did not have much to counter that with because they used up most of their mitigation witnesses during the evidentiary phase. They invited some of Malvo's former teachers and a pastor to the stand to speak about how polite and full of potential he was, but none of that packed much of a punch by comparison. But then came the closing statements. Haran used some of the defense attorney's words about Malvo against them. They had pointed out Malvo's intelligence. Harran emphasized that point, that Malvo was smart, lucid, and while a killer, cunning, and perfectly able to discern right from wrong. Then he used Malvo's own words against him, playing jurors a portion of Malvo's interview with investigators. On that recording, Malvo admitted to killing Linda Franklin, and also admitting that killing her would have a greater effect on the public than killing her husband, who was standing a few feet from her. After that, Haran queued up the autopsy photo of Linda Franklin. That gruesome image caused Katrina Hannum, who was seated in the courtroom, to jerk her head to the side. She started choking back tears. Afterward, it was Cooley's turn at the lectern. At one point, he held a large rock in his hand. It was a symbol of how executions used to be carried out long ago in human history by way of stoning. While holding that rock, Cooley said, quote, The Commonwealth urges you to kill, to stain yourself with the blood of this child. Coming full circle, Cooley ended his closing statement with these words. And as Una James did with all of the caretakers that she gave this child to, I leave you with a phrase. It's a phrase that both invites you to met punishment out, but also to temper it, to draw the line short of the ultimate penalty. And I leave you with that phrase, punish this child, save the eye. And that's what they did. Following nine hours of deliberation, jurors voted unanimously to give Malvo life in prison. I hope you're enjoying Chasing Ghosts, The Hunt for the D.C. Snipers a podcast launched earlier this year through Law & Crime and now distributed by the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. This is your host, Tony Holt. If you're liking Chasing Ghosts so far, I encourage you to leave a rating and review. I wanted to take this time to make a special announcement. Next month, following the conclusion of Chasing Ghosts, the Democrat Gazette will launch my next podcast, The Devil of Pope County America's Worst Family Massacre Episodes for The Devil of Pope County will be released every Monday beginning in mid-November The trailer is coming soon Stay tuned
6: the jury's decision today, surprising to many, to spare the life of Leboyd Malvo. To many, everything about the case seemed tailor-made for the death sentence. The crimes certainly were atrocious, the venue tough. The jurors open to capital punishment, and in the case of John Muhammad, without mercy. All of this augured strongly against Mr. Malvo, but something else might have come into play in addition to his young age, at least according to the prosecutor in the case. We used to have a theory, he said, when I was a young prosecutor. Never try a case on Christmas week.
0: Harran did not walk to the media tent after the verdict, but some of us saw him exiting the courtroom. So we ran over to him to get his comments.
3: Well, of course, I'm not happy with the uh, decision, but that's the American way. 12 jurors decide these things. The prosecutor doesn't decide them.
0: A public information officer with the courthouse saw the gaggle of reporters surrounding Haran and asked him to make his public statements at the designated media tent. He declined and walked to his car without offering any further comment. April Carroll remembers how Haran and others on the Commonwealth side felt after the jury's decision
5: wasn't something I expected or was prepared for, that, you know, they would not render a death penalty decision. And so I remember being really mixed with emotions when that occurred. And a lot has transpired since, but in the moment, it felt like a failure. It was an intense feeling of shock and, you know, oh my God, after all this work, we failed, which wasn't a realistic feeling, but it it is what I
0: felt at the time. The jury foreman, James wolf did speak to the reporters under the tent.
7: This case was both mentally challenging and emotionally exhausting. Deep thought and consideration has gone into our deliberations and the decisions that we reached.
0: Journalists also heard from shooting survivor Paul LaRufa, who 15 months earlier was struck down by five bullets from Malvo's gun on orders from Muhammad. He said he was surprised at the differing sentencing recommendations for the two killers.
6: There were two people who committed the ultimate crime. One got the ultimate penalty and one didn't. I ask you why.
0: It was reported that all but two trial jurors in Chesapeake were ready to vote for death. But the two who insisted on life stood their ground. Knowing they had to be unanimous, the jurors decided to end the trial with a life-in-prison recommendation. Judges in Virginia did not have the power to change a life recommendation to death, so Malvo's life was going to be spared. There was still the expectation by many that Malvo would still face a capital murder trial, probably elsewhere in Virginia, namely Prince William County, but that would not happen. Fourteen months after the trial, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that executing juveniles was cruel and unusual punishment. So no juvenile offenders, even those on death row around the country, would be put to death. Mark Petrovich, one of Malvo's attorneys, felt that the jury's decision in Chesapeake was a factor in that ruling.
3: We as a team here like to think that our work on the Malvo case helped sway the Supreme Court to push it in that direction. Some people joke and say, well, the Supreme Court deemed it was unconstitutional, like really quick after you had that trial. So all that work was really for nothing anyway, you wouldn't have been executed. And we always like to say that I think they, they took a look at that case and said, look, If you can't get a death penalty against a juvenile offender under those facts and circumstances, well, then you're you're never going to. And it it just doesn't make any sense to have that type of punishment still available for, for juvenile defendants.
0: Paul Ebert, the Commonwealth's attorney in Prince William County, Virginia, was next in line to prosecute Malvo, but he declined to do so after the high court's ruling but John Allen Muhammad would stand trial again in Montgomery County in the spring of 2006. Once again, he insisted on defending himself, and this time, he did so for the duration of the trial. Among the witnesses he cross-examined was none other than Lee Boyd Malvo. It was the first time since their arrest that they faced one another. Doug Gansler was still the state's attorney for Montgomery County at the time. He would go on to become Maryland's Attorney General and would twice run for governor, failing to gain his party's nomination both times. Gansler prosecuted Muhammad and was seated in the courtroom when the defendant questioned Malvo, who by that time was unaffected by Muhammad's manipulation.
3: So Mohammed acted as his own lawyer, and that was surreal, watching him cross-examine Malvo. Because he, Mohammed, thought he still could sort of control Malvo emotionally, but he could not. By that point, he didn't realize that that sort of separated his way of thinking from the past and, and was now blaming Mohammed, rightfully so, for all of what happened. But it was surreal to be there. I mean, it was just like, it was crazy man asking questions.
0: Mohamed was convicted of Montgomery County on all charges and was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences. Gansler did not seek a death sentence. Three and a half years later, Mohamed was scheduled to be executed in Greensville, Virginia, for his 2003 conviction. Among those formally invited to attend was shooting survivor Iron Brown, the middle school student who was shot in Bowie, Maryland.
2: This affected so many people that even when I was invited to the execution, they didn't even have a slot for me to attend the actual execution. They had to put me in what was called an overflow room because that's how many people were affected. And I would assume that the family members who are no longer here, they were, you know, a priority, understandably so.
0: Iron, who was 20 years old by the time Muhammad was executed, declined to attend. Another invitee who did not go to Greensville that night was Paul Larufa.
6: I declined and I wrote a letter. It was read at the execution and it was explaining to them why I chose not to attend. And it was just saying, I don't want him to steal another day of my life. And I would feel no satisfaction watching him die.
0: Among those who did make the trip to Greensville that night was Milton Perry one of Conrad Johnson's closest friends. Johnson was the last of the D.C. sniper victims. Perry wore a pin commemorating Johnson, which included the date of his death.
2: I have been waiting Seven for it since years. that date. You see that button? That's that date. I've
0: been waiting since then. Okay, so it's here. I pull it out every year and wear it on that day so I can put it up tonight, and maybe I won't have to wear it next year. Richmond reporter John Burkett of WTVR Channel 6, was among the media members who witnessed the execution. This is what he remembered most from watching Muhammad.
7: They asked him if he had any final words, and he said, nope. It was just very calloused and cold.
0: About 15 minutes later, on the night of November 10th, 2009, John Allen Muhammad was pronounced dead.
2: The execution of John Allen Muhammad has been carried out under the laws of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Death was pronounced at 9, 11 p.m. There were no complications.
0: The death of Muhammad meant there was no chance of hearing from him about what his motivations were. During his co-defendant's trial, it was discovered that Muhammad wanted to take the 10 million dollars he tried to extort from the government and create a society in Canada where he would turn homeless youths into young soldiers. There also was the theory that he came to D.C. to kill his ex-wife, Mildred Muhammad, but wanted to wait until after he and Malvo killed various people so that it would appear as though Mildred was another randomly targeted victim. The theory goes that he was caught before he had a chance to kill her. April Carroll still considers that a credible theory.
5: Muhammad never offered any sort of explanation, confession at all throughout the entire process to anyone that we know of. Certainly Mildred, his ex-wife, believed the theory, if you will, that Mr. Ebert and his team put forward in the trial that it was all about killing her and that with all the other random killings if if she were shot and killed he would assume custody of his kids again and no one would ever be suspicious and, and that's a viable theory the friends that we spoke to the colleagues out in Washington state thought that was a likelihood
0: as well to gansler mohammed's motivation did not have anything to do with setting up a camp in canada or his ex-wife he wanted to inflict terror
3: yeah i mean he changed his name to John Muhammad. It was a year after 9-11. I think the idea that he wanted to extort the government was absolutely an afterthought. I mean, that came deep into the investigation when he started asking for money. And I think that was a ruse. If he had wanted to kill his wife, he would have. I, I just think it would, that was the motive. The random nature of this and the way it was sort of spread around, not only the city but the country, I think was clearly that was the motive
0: here. Virginia would abolish the death penalty in 2020. During the span of 15 years, Virginia went from being one of the rare places in the world that executed juveniles and being the state with the second most executions after Texas, to becoming the first state in the southern United States to end the practice of state-sponsored executions. Andrea Boudin, my former co-worker who covered Muhammad's trial and who is now a Virginia prosecutor, talked about how Muhammad's early death ended any hope of him explaining himself.
5: There was an indoctrination process that clearly took place there. And because Muhammad himself kept silent on a lot of it, I don't think we really fully appreciate what that was like and why it happened. I think that's one of the other reasons to go back to why the death penalty opinion has changed. As human beings, we want an explanation. Why did you do this? If you give someone the death penalty, you don't ever get that. He's one of those ones, he never explained it. He took that to his grave. And it's very frustrating, I think, to a lot of those people whose family members were killed to think, okay, so you wanted your kids back and maybe you wanted to kill your ex-wife. Why this?
0: As for Lee Boyd Malveaux, he remains incarcerated at Red Onion State Prison in Southwest Virginia, one of the Commonwealth's highest security inmate facilities. Following his conviction in 2003 and formal sentencing the following year, Malvo pleaded guilty to two more slayings in Virginia. He later pleaded guilty to more murders in Maryland and received six additional life sentences. He has not been tried or convicted for his admitted roles in any of the shootings in Washington State, Arizona, Georgia, Louisiana, or Alabama. In another development, The U.S. Supreme Court has since ruled that juveniles may not be sentenced to life without parole. Malvo had been granted a re-sentencing in Virginia. He was still pursuing a new sentencing hearing when then-Virginia Governor Ralph Northam in 2020 signed into law a bill that granted the possibility of parole for juvenile offenders serving 20 years or more in prison. Afterward, Malvo dropped his request for re-sentencing and sought parole. Malvo's request was denied by the Virginia Parole Board last August. According to the Washington Post, the board wrote, Considering your offense and your institutional records, the board concludes that you should serve more of your sentence before being paroled. The board also stated that it still considers Malvo a risk to the community. With regards to his Maryland convictions, that state's Court of Appeals ruled last year that Malvo was entitled to a resentencing hearing. The Associated Press reported that after the 4-3 ruling, the Court of Appeals judge Robert McDonald wrote in his majority opinion, quote, As a practical matter, this may be an academic question in Mr. Malvo's case, as he would first have to be granted parole in Virginia before his consecutive life sentences in Maryland even begin. There are still several legal hurdles remaining for Malvo in those two states. So for now, he remains incarcerated in Virginia, awaiting his next opportunity for parole. Even if every hurdle is cleared, and those other states where he is accused of murder decline to prosecute him, Malvo would still face the likelihood of deportation due to his illegal immigrant status. I submitted a request to Malvo seeking an interview. He declined. Malvo's pursuit of parole is actually supported by one very unlikely person, Paul Rufa. This same Paul Rufa, who moments after jurors in Chesapeake decided against recommending a death sentence for Malvo conveyed confusion and disappointment. He explained to me that the emotion inside the courtroom immediately following the announcement of the jury's recommendation was palpable, and LaRoufa felt some of that emotion himself.
6: When the sentence was announced in the courtroom, people gasped and some people screamed and the the daughter of Linda Franklin was hysterical and was crying and and she wasn't the only one. There were people who acted really as if he was set free.
0: Larufa carried those emotions with him when he addressed the media that day. During the years, he's gained a broader perspective and has even been involved in raising awareness for juvenile offenders, gaining the opportunity for parole after they've served at least 20 years of their prison sentence, which Malvo has.
6: I am in favor of the fact that you can't sentence a juvenile to a death, and being that I've involved with the Campaign for the Fast Sentencing of Youth, I've also evolved to the point where I I don't think you should sentence a 15, 16, 17-year-old or or younger to life without the possibility of parole. And that's where we are now in many states.
0: In addition to Paul LaRufa, I interviewed two other shooting survivors for this series, Kelly Randall and Iron Brown. For Randall, perhaps the worst day of her long recovery After being shot in the face outside that Alabama liquor store, was the first day she looked into a mirror.
8: It took me about two days to wake up. But after that, it still took them about two days for them to let me see a mirror because my face was so swollen. I really was unrecognizable to myself. And then when I finally saw myself, I was like, my life is over. I look like a monster. I really looked horrible. And I had over 500 stitches in my face. And the doctor even told me, he's like, I lost count at 500.
0: Randall has had multiple reconstructive surgeries to repair her face. She also had a tracheostomy because when they intubated her, there was so much blood that they couldn't see down her throat. The tube was inserted in a way that her vocal cords were seriously damaged. Over time, there was fear that she would need an electronic voice box or a permanent trach. In 2008, Randall found a surgeon in Cincinnati who removed her trach and placed a stent into her vocal cords. She had a neurostimulator removed in 2013, and that was the last time she went under the knife. She is no longer self-conscious about her appearance. Randall's anger about how dramatically her life changed that one night in September 2002 was directed mostly at Muhammad. She doesn't gloss over Malvo's culpability, but in her mind, Muhammad was the villainous mastermind who pulled all the strings even if he wasn't the one who usually pulled the trigger. Randall also thinks justice was served when Muhammad was put to death. She declined to attend Muhammad's execution, but she did ask for and received a call from someone from the prison to give her a confirmation. I
8: spoke with the lady that was kind of in charge of getting everyone there and I told her I said I'm not interested. I said but as soon as it's finished call me. And she did. Like the second it was done, I got a phone call and she's like it's, you know, it's done, it's over. And I just burst out crying and I'm like thank you so much because it was it was a closure to me. Seeing him die would not have made me feel any better. Knowing that he's not on this
0: earth makes me feel better. Iron Brown also had a long road to recovery from the moment he awakened from his coma.
2: Just as much, I had to go through, through rehabilitation. I had to learn how to walk again, talk again. Uh, I have a scar on my chest and my stomach that, you know, reminds me daily.
0: Iron testified in person in front of both murder defendants. Here he is describing what it was like sitting on the witness stand in front of John Allen Muhammad.
2: I'll never forget when I did have the opportunity to see him. Obviously, during the trial, the FBI and the police all stressed to me, don't look his direction. You know, I defied him, and I I just wanted to be able to face him. I intend on facing my elbow, hopefully. But I remember looking across him from the stand. I'll never forget how he tried to intimidate me, and the look that he gave me of disgust. You know, I don't know. Maybe he wished he was the one who would have shot me. I'm not even sure.
0: He said testifying at Malvo's trial was also an intense experience, but inside that Chesapeake courtroom, he did not sit directly in front of Malvo.
5: had brought Iron into the courtroom early which we didn't do with all the witnesses but he had asked can i see the courtroom can i see where i'm gonna sit you know what's the whole thing gonna be like I, i just need to walk through it so we did that with him and he asked us which was a very mature ask really he asked if he could sit on the side where the jury sat instead of in the box that was right in front of Malvo. And we asked permission from the judge and she granted it. And so we set up a chair and he was treated differently from, from that standpoint um, because he made the request. And I just remember feeling for him, you know, how tense and, and how difficult this was going to be to face the shooter after everything he'd been through. And he just was so calm
0: and did so well. Iron said he has never spoken to Lee Boyd Malvo but he would like to someday.
2: He was 17 at the time, I was 13. So us being so close in age, you know, this is so crazy how our lives have been intertwined. And I'm definitely looking forward to hearing Malvo's point of view. I I actually love to meet him. And I would love to have a sit down with him if possible, if if he'll be up for it. I think that would be the least he could do (laughs) given, you know, how he has, you know, affected my life personally.
0: But Iron draws the line at the thought of his shooter being granted parole
2: i've never been a person who who believes i should be the judge jury and executioner but i do personally feel that what he did was wrong i have very little sympathy towards him despite him being manipulated and being so young i feel as though he was old enough to know that what he was doing was was bad he knew better there were plenty of opportunities that he could have turned the gun on muhammad there were plenty of opportunities they were both in public he could have made a scene he could have made a run for it he could have alarmed authorities i mean i just feel like there were so many what-ifs and things that he didn't take advantage of, and I think that that's where will be his downfall as far as being paroled, because I would not like to have him free.
0: Iron is now 33 years old, living and working in Atlanta, and is a father of one. For many Americans, the DC sniper case is a fading memory. Maybe they watched a movie or a docuseries about it, Maybe they still have vague recollections of watching one breaking news story after another during those three weeks. One thing is for certain, if you lived 20 years ago in the DC area or the Richmond area, your recollection of it probably has not waned nearly as much. Literally, those living from Glenmont to Glen Allen had their lives interrupted and altered. John McCarthy, who is the current Montgomery County State's Attorney, said there was no other case like it. It overtook everything in his life, not only during that period of his legal career, but his home life too. On the night of October 22, 2002, after Conrad Johnson was fatally shot a short drive from his house, he and his wife were lying in bed. His wife could hear police helicopters flying overhead, and that's when she sat up and began sobbing, asking her husband whether the horror would ever end. Those three weeks of sniper shootings invoked a dreaded fear into millions of people. No one that lived here escaped the effect
7: of the snipers. No one escaped, you couldn't escape it. Children could, you know, they may not even have understood why they weren't allowed to go in their own backyards, why they couldn't go over to their friend's house why they couldn't go up to the ball field, why their soccer games were canceled, why, you know, why things were happening. But everyone was affected. People would run zigzag to go buy a carton of milk. They would be afraid to put gas in their cars. Everyone was terrified, literally altered. We've been a metropolitan area. I've got over a million people live in my community. There's not anybody that was here at the time who didn't live differently. Some things happen, sometimes you read about it in the newspaper, but it doesn't touch you. This touched everybody.
0: The DC sniper shootings also affected the reporters who covered it, especially Stacey Cohan.
4: People have asked me my whole life, my whole career, what is the most impactful thing you have ever covered? And most people expect expect me to say 9-11 because that was impactful, but nothing impacted my life like the DC snipers, nothing.
0: And it had a significant impact on those who investigated it. April Carroll shared with me her memories of going home hours after the suspects were captured. And after the seized weapon was test fired.
5: I just remember going home that evening after the gun had been test fired and the confirmation had come that the Bushmaster recovered in the caprice that was being driven by these two suspects had been confirmed to be the murder weapon of all of those victims. And Mike Bouchard was at the podium making that announcement to the media. And I just remember the tears were just flowing down my cheeks. And it was (laughs) a crazy sensation of emotion. And pride and you know relief and accomplishment and i was watching that press conference at home with my three small kids elementary school age kids and they're like looking at me and they're looking at the tv and they're like mom why are you crying this is good news isn't it don't we get to have recess and pe now and you know i was kind of laughing as i was crying with the impact that it also had been having on them and their reality so that day was a lot of emotions
0: The total reward money for the capture of the suspects was half a million dollars. Most of it, $350,000 of it, went to Robert Holmes, the Tacoma, Washington man who first notified police of Muhammad and Malvo, and whose backyard became an excavation site for the FBI, which pulled out the tree stump that still had the two-two-three caliber rounds in it. The remaining $150,000 was given to Whitney Donahue, who called 911 from his work van after spotting the Chevrolet Caprice at the rest stop near Frederick, Maryland. Donahue died last year after battling a long illness. In the eyes of many, including April Carroll, he acted heroically that night 20 years ago, and he was not merely rewarded for it, he was honored for it.
5: Whitney Donahue was the most humble and down-to-earth person. It was amazing to see him and meet him, you know, through the courtroom process. But also, once we had the memorial established up in Wheaton, Maryland, the families were invited for the opening of that. And we invited Whitney Donahue, and he came and attended and met the families who just were, you know, hugging and thank you for preventing this level of destruction for other families that certainly would have been where we are if you hadn't done what you'd done and you know he had tears and was super emotional like and humble like oh please stop you know i just did what anybody would have done and it was really cool to see him engage with the families and be praised i guess and and told how much it meant what he did and the risk that he ran do what he did
0: in the aftermath of the shootings after muhammad and malva were apprehended The public also showed their appreciation to the Montgomery County Police Chief and Sniper Task Force Commander, Charles Moose. Inside the JOC, there was word that President Bush was trying to reach Moose on the phone via Air Force One. Bush's Chief of Staff, Andrew Card, called Moose and said he had the President with him. While on the phone, Bush thanked the chief for lifting the shadow of fear. Some of the investigators in the room got emotional. It was a weighty moment. Moose, as he often did, decided the time was right to break some of the tension. That evening, during a media conference, he blurted out, quote, I'm going to tell my wife to pump her own damn gas. He turned from the podium and stopped. Then he turned back to it and said, don't you tell her I said that. Everyone burst into laughter. It seemed Moose had all of the wind at his back at that moment. Surely there were tactical and media errors on the part of the task force he led. But just when it seemed the tide was going to turn, the multi-agency effort ended the bloodshed. Moose wanted to tell his story. He had a book ready for publication. But Montgomery County had a written policy against profiting from such a project. And prosecutors weren't happy about it either moose could have appealed the county committee's ruling but he chose not to because the book was already scheduled to go to the presses in a matter of months so he resigned in june 2003. he always resented that his sense of ethics was questioned by so many people following his exit moose's widow sandy talked to me about that period of their lives
8: you know, you not want to leave the job. I mean, we were building a new house, you know, and about to move in. And we liked the area. So what
0: happened?
8: The fight just got too, it just bubbled up and got too big. And, and it was just time to move on.
0: The book was released with little fanfare. Moose may have decided to publish the book at his own peril, but it wasn't a matter of someone having a damn the torpedoes attitude about publishing such a volatile story. And it was not like he didn't care about the possible impact it could have had on the pending trials. John McCarthy made a point to tell me that.
7: When he wrote his book, we still had the pending trial. I had a much better relationship with him than Doug did. When he wrote the book, because he was concerned about making sure there would be nothing in his book that would compromise the trial, he had hired me to read the galleys of his book so that if there was anything that needed to be taken out that would adversely impact the ability to get a, get them convicted. I thought the fact that he worried about that, he was concerned about the integrity of the prosecution. I thought that spoke well of him.
0: Moose would be a candidate for other police chief jobs, but he was never hired. He'd resume his law enforcement career in a faraway place, and not as a police chief, or a captain, or a lieutenant, or even a sergeant. He was hired to be a patrol officer in Honolulu, Hawaii. Sandy Moose told me that she and Charles had already moved to Hawaii by that time, and he applied for the job at the police department so they could have health benefits. After he was hired, most people there had not heard of Charles Moose. During his training period, recruits watched a video that included a medley, if you will, of high-profile criminal cases that involved massive police responses. So naturally, there was footage of Moose addressing the media, talking about one sniper shooting after another. Everyone in the room, sporting a shocked expression, turned their eyes to the quiet guy in the back. Moose served a few years with the police department and retired for good from law enforcement. He and his wife eventually moved to Tampa, Florida. There was always that undercurrent that Moose's story was a tragic one, how someone's personal ambitions drove him out of a job he loved and worked so hard to attain, and how a man who got a congratulatory call from the president had wound up patrolling an island. I spoke to Sandy about that. The perception was there was a fallout after the book. He resigned or retired under arrest. He never got another chief's job, so his only other police job was in Honolulu. It may have seemed from those of us watching from afar that it was a fall from Grace. But it never was that.
8: No, no. But he knew that but he didn't care to explain it, you know. (laughs) And, And uh when you're when you've been to the ball and then you don't get invited back you know it, you know, and you know your time's up and you know, people don't care how successful you are, how much knowledge you have, yet we're not here from you. And definitely that day came for Charles.
0: And that was all because of the book?
8: Um, definitely it changed our life. You know, you make some good moves, you make some bad moves.
0: Charles Moose died at his home on Thanksgiving Day 2021. He was 68 years old. If you watched a lot of news 20 years ago, and you remember anything about Charles Moose, there's a good chance the first thing you remember is footage of that press conference on October 7th, 2002, when he addressed the snipers after they shot and seriously wounded 13-year-old Iron Brown in front of his school. Moose was embarrassed about showing so much emotion that day, but it never drew scorn from anyone. People saw his humanity, and they appreciated it. Cause it's not about public perception but public perception of him was shaped a lot on that day
8: yeah yeah he called me right after that press conference was over and he goes I might have won it you know people may never forgive me but I couldn't I couldn't not do that you know that it hurt so bad and I said you know it wasn't something you planned to do it's something that came from your heart it's going to be okay Charles I mean you know he was pretty pure in agenda, you know, that whole thing. The tear, when he died, the tear rolled
0: down. In his book, Moose stated, quote, one thing I'm grateful to law enforcement for is the chance it has given me to be a leader. I want to take a moment to thank the more than 40 interview guests who took time and showed their willingness to share their unique insight and emotional stories with me for this series. The source material for Chasing Ghosts included digital and television news clips from the Associated Press, CNN, ABC, CBS, and NBC News. I also relied on my own trial notes, as well as archived stories from the Journal Newspapers, The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Baltimore Sun, The Richmond Times-Dispatch, and The Associated Press. Other sources included the book, Sniper, The Hunt for the Killers Who Terrorized the Nation, written by Sari Horowitz and Michael Ruane of The Washington Post, as well as In Pursuit, The Hunt for the Beltway Snipers by David Reichenball, and Three Weeks in October, The Manhunt for the Serial Sniper by Charles Moose and Charles Fleming. I want to thank Sam Goldberg and others at Law & Crime for granting me the opportunity to tell this story. And a special thanks goes out to Corey Hiltman for his outstanding production work and to Brandy Meixel for her loving support during this year-long endeavor. Please take a moment to leave a rating and a review. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Chasing Ghosts, The Hunt for the DC Snipers. Chasing Ghosts is presented by Law and Crime. Music and production by Corey Hiltman. All 911 and dispatch calls were provided by the National Law Enforcement Museum in Washington, D.C. You may follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Holt Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. Chasing Ghosts is available on Law and Crime's website, as well as Apple Podcasts, Spotify or anywhere else you get podcasts.